okay, great. I'm going to continue our series, The Very Good Gospel. And I'm going to continue the way Stephanie has the last two weeks by talking about how blessed my dog is. <laughs> so life is messy, yes. Life is messy. Life is difficult at times. Life is joyful. Life is beautiful. But I don't know anybody who enjoys life more than, well, Monty, I guess, and Margot, I guess, but also Fergie, our dog, Beth and I's dog, is living her best life this morning in Jordanstown. She was running the beach, and when, when her humans don't throw the ball, as in when Beth and I don't throw the ball right, she goes over to other strangers and drops the ball in front of them and looks at them, <laughs> throw me the ball. She's living her best life, Fergie, but we know, um, obviously, uh, we've been digging into this series that is dealing with the reality that life for us as humans is complicated and difficult and challenging at times, and our world is broken and, and unfortunately broken, and yet as Christians, we are part of this story, this family of God, we, can, we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we believe is a gospel that is bringing wholeness and, and shalom to this world, shalom meaning peace. So if you, we're going through this, if you haven't picked up this book, I've been speaking to some of you this week who are really enjoying this book. If you haven't picked it up, let me really encourage you to do so. It's on Kindle, it's not too expensive. Um, or if you want a copy, come and speak to me. We've got a few copies, I can give you one. Um, but it's a really good book. And I know in these days, in general, we just need um, inspiration. You know, we're, these are our apathetic days in general. And so when you see the big picture of, of the gospel of Jesus, it can really inspire us, encourage us as people of Jesus again. So please do pick up a copy and read that. Um, this week, um, uh, Gillian texted me uh, uh, a link and was encouraging me and our leaders to, uh, to a particular discussion on the big story of God. What is the story of God? Where is our story going? What is the hope in the Christian story, the Christian hope. And so in a sense, what I'm going to speak about today is going to speak to a bit of that. Um, I don't know why I've decided to take on the, the issues of race and ethnicity and, and reconciliation and sectarianism and nation states and what the gospel says about all of that in 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. And it's maybe not something that you're, you're wanting to, to hear about today. Maybe some of you are, but we're going to go for it anyway. Um, I'm not even going to begin to cover any of that in great detail at all, of course. I'm not, but I do want to offer us as a church community today um, some broad brushstrokes that I think inform the big story of what God is doing in the world to bring wholeness. Um, I should say that I am no expert or authority in the issues of race, race reconciliation. I am a learner um, and I would encourage all of us in this community to be learners, to be people who read widely, to understand some of these issues that affect us um, and educate ourselves about these issues. Um, so anyway, let's begin. The scripture in Isaiah 61 for today is going to come up on the screen. Let me read this scripture to begin our reflections this morning. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, 
to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a garment of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And here ends the reading uh, and the doing of this word. We pray God would bless our word today. Um, Over the last year, obviously, we've been living through this global pandemic. We know, obviously, all about that. But obviously, other things have been going on in our world, on the news, in the geopolitical world. And one of the big things that have been happening around the world we've seen over the past 15 months have been this increase of protests around the world regarding race, people protesting for equality, protesting against systemic or institutionalized racism, movements like Black Lives Matter, for example. No matter our views on that particular organization, the core idea and the core heart of that very statement is deeply a Christian conviction. And Stephanie shared that last week and informs the vision that this book, in fact, that our Christian story is based upon. And it is this, that every person, every single person in our street and in our city, in our world, no matter what their religion, no matter what their sexuality, their skin color, their ethnicity, their gender, every single person is made in the image of God, the icon, the Yamago Dei. That is a radical idea. And we take it for granted, I think I do anyway, at the heart and the foundation of our faith is this idea, this truth that every single human is sacred, is made in the image of God. What does that mean in some terms? It means that all things being equal, every person was created with the command and the capacity to exercise what Genesis 1, the story calls dominion, or to put it in some language we might understand in modern terms, every person was made to exercise agency in the world, to lead And so for us to diminish or to ignore the ability of humans to exercise dominion, to carry out that creation mandate, which was so very good, the tov mahod, the vision of goodness, the creation that God said was good, if we diminish or ignore the ability for any human to exercise dominion or agency, then we are ignoring the image of God in them. And it is to diminish or ignore God's very image on the earth. The fastest way to diminish the ability of humans to exercise agency, the fastest way, the surest way, is through poverty or through oppression. And that is just some definitions given by Lisa Sharon Harper in this book. But we as Christians, we have the Imago Dei, our story that God created every human soul. Let me just do a little bit of a deep dive here for just one moment. 
ethnicity, culture, nationality, race, these terms are interchangeable and have been used in interchangeable ways and they all have different meanings, different origins, different purposes and outcomes. And in truth, there's no one definition for any one of these terms. Here is what Lisa Sharon Harper describes. We have ethnicity, which is biblical. It is created by God as people groups moving together through space and time. It is dynamic and developed over long periods of time. It is not about power, but it is about group identity and heritage and language and place and common group experience over time. Think of ethnicity as the difference between African-American or Caribbean, British, African, Irish, Korean, Korean-American, English, Polish, etc., 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 and so forth. Ethnicity is God's very good intention for humanity. Ethnicity is God's very good intention for humanity. What about culture then? Well, culture is explicit in the Scriptures but the word itself is never used. The word culture, it's a sociological term. It's an anthropological term. It refers to these beliefs and these norms and these rituals that we do in time and place, in a particular time and place, the worldviews of particular people in a particular time and place. So culture is very fluid. Then there's nationality, the, the nation state that we belong to as a legal citizen. It's the geopolitical category, and it's best... Uh, I guess, represented by um, the indicator of that is our, our birth certificate or the passport that we hold. These are all identities in a sense. Many English translations of the Bible translate the Hebrew words for ethnicity as nation, but we must understand that nation states, the way we understand them, these territories and political areas that were drawn on, uh, geographically with shared governments, nation states in a sense, did not exist prior to the late 18th century. They're a modern construct. Before the modern era, people organized themselves around ethnic tribes and clans and ethnically-based empires. And that's where I want to just spend a few moments now just looking at the story of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel in Genesis. Hang with me for, for, for a few minutes in the same way that Genesis 1 offers a sweeping account of creation and Genesis 2 offers a detailed account, in Genesis 10 we have this sweeping account of the mandate for, 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 to, to multiply and fill the earth. And then the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is a very specific example of it. So the Tower of Babel story is the specific and separate account of how that mandate was fulfilled. Before the Tower of Babel was destroyed, the whole earth had one language and had the same words. That's the big principle. One language, same words. Everyone spoke the same language. The people had gathered from the east to the land of Shinar, where they settled. And Shinar exhibits like the characteristics of empire, a single trade language, a commitment to building tall buildings and monuments, and oppressing and exploiting slave labor. That's just the big idea of what's happening in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. But in this great act of care for human life, God intervened into that story 
in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, God intervenes in that story, confusing the people's language. And Jehovah scatters the people, lest they bring more destruction upon more people. More than any other, this text of Genesis 11 lays the foundations for understanding God's good intentions for shalom on earth, for ethnicity and for culture. Don't trust me, but Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the top Old Testament scholars in the world, he talks about this scattering of the peoples as not a curse, but as some have interpreted it, but as a blessing. It is an act of care from the divine. As the people scattered, the people would settle in wider areas, having the chance to fulfill the basic human call to have agency and to multiply and fill the earth. And they would develop separate languages and cultures and worldviews, and each group would experience distinct trials and triumphs and develop these core strengths and weaknesses as a result. And all these various ethnic heritages would be forged through these common experiences that we all share as humans. According to Brueggemann, God's kind of unity will be achieved as all parts of the diverse human family look to God and respond to God. Let me repeat that again. God's kind of unity will be achieved when all parts of the diverse human family look to God and respond to God. As counterintuitive as it sounds, the confusion of languages in this ancient story, the Tower of Babel, was from God, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2. The reality that humanity speaks a multitude of languages cannot be dealt with successfully without God. In a sense, it basically teaches us of our limitations, that we need God to be able to build unity with other people. And this limitation and this these variety of languages, the scattering, it draws us back to God and reliance on God as he leads us to build shalom on earth among all ethnic groups. We as Christians know better than some of the stories that we've been told that every person is made in the image of God. And God is committed to that vision in the Tower of Babel and it continues in the person of Jesus We see Jesus incarnate walking among us on earth, crossing ethnic boundaries. He does it with the Samaritan woman. We looked at that in week two of this series. He does it with the demoniac. He does it with the Syrophician woman, the Roman centurion. On the cross, the tablet above Jesus' head, King of the Jews, was written several different languages as a taunt, mocking him as a supposed king. The tablet actually made it possible for Jesus to cross ethnic and linguistic barriers, even in his death. The Christian story continues to be for one and for all when we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, which is like a big reversal of the Tower of Babel story, if you're into your theology. Essentially, The confusion of languages in the Tower of Babel story was reversed. When you open Acts chapter 2, you see the Spirit of God being poured out upon the people of God, the church, 
You see men and women who did not speak the same languages suddenly speaking each other's languages and understanding them. In a sense, God was reversing the effects of this while still honoring the languages and the people in that story. God's vision was for this ethically diverse vision of all peoples coming into his family. And then moving forward, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, who points to Jesus' power to reconcile Jews and Gentiles, these bitter ethnic enemies. He points to the ability for them to come together as an example of the resurrection of the power of Jesus to do so. And he says this in Ephesians 2, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. In the temple, there were these different sections. There was a wall that separated Gentiles, non-Jews, from the Jews. And a written warning told Gentiles not to cross beyond that point. That is hostility. That is hostility. But Jesus fulfilling this vision of shalom, breaks that wall down. He breaks it down. When he beat death, he reverses the effect of the fall. Having overcome the one power that every human must encounter, death, he ensures that he could beat all other powers of division. Everything that would divide us as humans and separate us as humans, Christ has overcome including the power of ethnic enmity. Amen? Amen? This is relevant stuff for our world. What might our churches look like if we believed and practiced this? It is in our story. What dividing walls of hostility would fall? What policies and structures would be transformed there's lawyers in the room <laughs> that know more about that than I do. How might our desire to be safe, you know, to be ethnically and culturally insulated and protected from critique and challenge and change, how might that be challenged by this vision? How might it be transformed when we encounter the living God and his vision of diversity and unity and diversity? How much more of Jesus would people of faith experience, would we experience if we allowed him to break down the walls of difference, cultural, ethnic, or whatever difference in us? Theologian Willie Jennings, I referred to him earlier, the Hope is a Discipline guy. He's a great guy on this. He's a real authority on it. He's written some amazing books. I recommend them, particularly his commentary on Acts, which is phenomenal. He has written extensively about race and reconciliation, and he recommends one way that we as Christians can do this. And it's to simply assume the posture of a guest instead of a host. What if we assume the posture of a guest who's curious and interested to learn, not to always host people in our space, but to go into their space even in our own city. We've had an amazing opportunity recently. There's a group called the Anaka Women's Collective. These are women who are in the asylum system here, and they just need a space to meet weekly, and we've, we've, they've come to us 
looking for a space that's safe in our city because they've had attacks on them, um, particularly in Tate's Avenue area, and they just want to gather somewhere. What do they gather to do? Well, they, they educate, they support, they advocate, they celebrate one another. Let me just read a little bit about them. Anaka, it's, it's based in Belfast. As I say, it's led predominantly by women who've experienced direct experience of the asylum system, and they aim to empower each other and foster community through garden projects, weekly English classes, Afro-hairstyling workshops, a yoga group, online schooling, training in food production, cooking classes, peer-led advice and support, campaign for childcare provision during asylum and interviews. And having looked for an easy, accessible space, they, they somehow find us through some folk in this beautiful community. So 40 women have begun to meet downstairs once a week, and it'll increase to twice a week. And they're bringing their sewing machines in. They're going to use the kitchen. They're going to be cooking. And we're hosting them. And yet I'm so deeply moved by this recommendation, this challenge, this invitation by Willie Jennings. What would it look like if we adopted the position of guest rather than host? What would it look like if we as a church community, instead of hosting these people in our space, adopted the posture of guest to learn from these women what we need to learn? What would that look like? What would it, what would it mean for us as the people of Jesus to assume a posture of learning instead of the other way around? Or take, for example, our farm box families, which is such a privilege and Dan. Dan Saunders, he has a big passion and the team that, that, that do farm box, the team that are facilitating the Anaka group, they have a big passion for this. But what would it look like for us? That's such a big privilege to, to bring food to our farm box families. What would it look like for us to humbly follow Jesus' spirit? To go, what can we learn from these beautiful people? What can we learn from them and their story? How can we be transformed by that? How can our prejudices be broken down? How can we enter fully into this story of reconciliation and shalom? I'm just throwing those thoughts out there. And speak to Dan, he's super passionate about it too. What would it look like for us? What about our politics? In a pluralistic democracy, we can't impose our conceptions of God onto our neighbors through a sacred text or domestic or foreign policy. It is, though, necessary for all peoples of faith, including us, when it comes to engaging politics, to engage our world in a way that moves us towards God's goodness. That's what it means when we engage the realm of politics. So here's something to chew on. If the construction of human empire is our goal, we are enemies of God's purposes on earth. If the flourishing of the image of God and the relationships of creation are our goal, then we are partners with God, exercising dominion that is the likeness of God himself. When humans aimed to elevate themselves and control their world, they inevitably crush the image of God in the other. But when the focus is on the flourishing of the image of God, freedom is present. Abundance is present. Grace is present for all. 
what would it look like for our current day empires of the United Kingdom or China or the United States or the European Union to make their primary purpose the blossoming of the image of God within their borders and beyond. There's just something for free, politically speaking. What about the church? What about this place we call Northern Ireland? How far wrong do we sometimes get it here when we elevate above these amazing calls of Jesus to love our neighbors, to live in peace? We elevate these divisive sectarian traditions. This is the gospel I'm preaching this morning. This is not radical stuff. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is allegiance to King Jesus and his kingdom of shalom. This is a vision that will set us on fire. Our identity as Christians is not on the curbstones or the gable walls of our city. It is written on our hearts. Our identity is not found in the flags of this city or the political covenants or the nationalism, but it is found in King Jesus and he calls us to come and die and follow him. I'm just preaching the gospel. We are not citizens of this world. The Apostle Paul says it so in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is radical and amazing stuff. Our hearts are rooted in a different kingdom. Our allegiance is to a different king, a king who does not come with the sword but comes in peace to draw everyone to himself. Our hearts are not found in building towers of Babel, but in our towers of political gain or sectarianism or idealism or nationalism or supremacy of any race, but in the gardens that we cultivate that tend to the values of the kingdom of God, which is truth and beauty and compassion and humility and meekness and enemy loving, where outcasts are welcomed and wounded hearts cared for and healed, where the reality is not just the bricks and the mortar in front of us, but the spiritual reality all around us. That's God's domain. This city is God's city. While the gospel is not a political message, it's not less than it though either. It really means stuff about this place. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. That is the call to discipleship, to surrender everything in our hearts and to make Jesus the Christ Lord. I adore Jesus. I adore Jesus. This community adores Jesus. We adore King Jesus. And the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, that means that Caesar's not Lord. There's much that the gospel can affirm about our city and our traditions, but there's also an awful lot that our gospel calls us to and calls us out of, calls us to critique. Hebrews 13 says, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're called not to ulsterize the gospel or nationalize the gospel, but to follow 
the peasant Galilean who is the incarnate God. We, we, we're called to follow him and our allegiance is to him. To be crystal clear about our worship and our pledge of allegiance to Jesus the Christ who tells us that every human being is made in the image of God and is working to bring a kingdom of shalom, not lording over others, but lifting others up. Our city needs division like a hole in the head. And Jesus comes to break down the dividing walls. He is a compassionate and kind king. Our city needs a move of God's spirit into the streets to proclaim the freedom and the abundance of this kingdom of Shalom, to break down those strongholds that are set up in our churches and in our nation to try to bring division. Our city needs brave and courageous Christians in every profession and every vocation to be brave enough to follow the way of Jesus and to turn their back on sectarianism or racism or nationalism or division or the pursuit of empire and instead to reject these unchristlike agendas and pursue the beautiful kingdom of peace and shalom, to let that freedom of Christ break out in our streets where everyone is affirmed as made in the image of God. I hope you're excited as I am because the gospel is radical and beautiful and for all of us it is just grace. And it continues and continues and continues to subvert our prejudices and call us to repent and to come again to follow Jesus, the King. It is not our political ideals that will save us. It's not our allegiance to any nation that will save us. It is not our national pride that will flee us. It is not dead religion that will liberate us. It is King Jesus that will save us and rescue us and restore us. In fact, he has. I cannot go on any further because it's five past 12. But if you want to read more about these issues, pick up this book and dive into it all. I have two exercises that I would love to do with us this morning. And you're welcome to join on at home as well. Um, these reflective exercises. I'm going to invite John up and I'm going to invite Caitlin up. And I'd love us to... Would you go with me? And, and, and you're up for a bit of reflection just for a moment. It should only take a few moments and then we're going to come to the table of grace this morning. I'd love you all to close your eyes just for one moment. And I want you to, for the first reflection, I want you to remember Isaiah's statement, the passage I read at the beginning. And in it, it says that it will be the oppressed and the brokenhearted and the captives and the imprisoned who will repair the ruined walls who will repair the ruined cities, who will repair the devastations. It will be the oppressed and the brokenhearted and the captives and the imprisoned who will repair the ruined cities and the devastations. I want you to imagine being led by the oppressed people who would feel oppressed in our city. Just in your mind, from which, imagine what would that look like? What's your gut saying? Be honest. <laughs> Be honest. What is your gut saying when you imagine following the least of these? 
the brokenhearted, the captives, the ones that are oppressed and ruled over and exploited. Maybe there's some confession you need to make for what comes up in your mind. You find that a difficult idea. Confess that to God this morning. That's the invitation for us all, to confess our prejudices, to invite the Spirit to break down those, those beliefs, to fill us with His Spirit. Maybe ask God to help you believe in the Isaiah 61 prophecy. That the ruined cities, the devastations, the brokenness will be made whole. And finally, if you believe, why not ask God in your heart right now to help you guide your steps to enter the movement to repair shalom. God, help me be part of a movement, this movement of Christ to repair shalom on earth. Maybe that's through your profession, your vocation, your family life. Maybe it's something we're doing even here in church. But the kingdom of God is so much bigger than what we're even doing here. It affects our very lives. Ask God to help you to guide your steps, to be part of that, the building of shalom. Here's the second reflection. Let me just read Revelation 22. Keep your eyes closed for a moment. This is what Revelation 22, just two verses says. And it's a vision of the city of Zion. It is a vision of the end of our story. And it says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night there will be no need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. At the center of that verse is this tree of life. Sit with me for a moment. Just picture yourself sitting at the foot of the tree of life in that city. There's no empire there's no coercion. There is no poverty. There's no inequity at the foot of that tree. There are no winners and there are no losers. The image of God thrives there. The tree produces 12 kinds of fruit every month. Enough for everyone. And for the images of God who come to the tree war-weary war or defeated, the ones who have suffered under the conquest of ungodly dominions of men, the leaves of this tree heal them. The leaves of this tree bring healing, shalom, peace. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This is a vision of the kingdom of God, of shalom, of peace, where everyone has enough and is equal and is at peace, at harmony, whole and healed. This is why I'm a Christian. Because of that vision of shalom. Let me read a few more verses. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. He sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be and might to the God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the vision of the kingdom of God. You may open your eyes. We're going to sing, Redeemer. John's going to lead us in a song. We're going to break bread, and then we're going to be out of here into the sunshine. But that picture of the kingdom of God, of what our story is all about, that is the gospel. That's the very good news of Jesus. To cross those boundaries and barriers, to break down dividing walls, to have a reality where everyone has enough, where no one is exploited, where everyone is dignified, where everyone is treated like they are as the image of the divine, holy and sacred. Stand to your feet. Let us sing. And during this song, Redeemer, um, may you come forward just one at a time, two at a time, come with your family. There's bread on this side. There's wine here. And collect the bread and take the wine, these symbols of Jesus and all that he's done for us in his death, his body and his blood that make a way between us to the Father. Take one of those each and hold it. Don't take it and return to your seat. And at the end of the song, we're going to take it together. We're going to commune with the body and blood of Christ. We're going to celebrate this grace and this vision of shalom. I'm going to hand over to John as we sing. Father, I just thank you for your blessing this morning. I pray, Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, that you would just continue to reveal to us this massive vision of reconciliation and wholeness, your kingdom of peace. May we be inspired, encouraged, and comforted by it. Lord, may you draw us close to King Jesus. May you help us to place our allegiance today in Christ again. We do pray it in Jesus' name.